Um, this will be the last Sunday in a uh, several Sundays in a row where we've done standalone sermons as we've kind of come out of Advent, heading into the new year. Next week, we'll be starting a brand new series on 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. We're going to spend probably the majority of, of 2020 in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to kick that off next week. So next week, brand new sermon series. But uh, right now, I'm going to read um, our text for today, our primary text at least. It's going to be Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God's word says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And I pray that as we dig into your text on a particular issue today revolving the um, image of God, the Imago Dei, I pray that you would um, help us all realize that these, these are your words. This is your word. It's, it's, it's alive and it's active. It has power. And I pray that you would uh, put on display that power this morning. That you would help um, change our minds. You would change our hearts. You would change the way we live as we leave this place. And I pray above everything else um, that you would be honored and you would be glorified during this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, child um, dedication is, is one of my favorite Sundays every year that we do this. Um, And even though uh, the majority of the focus is on the families and us as a church during that time, um, we wouldn't have this time if it weren't for new life. We wouldn't have uh, this time that we get to celebrate without um, new uh, babies and kids coming in to families. And so I think we would all just sitting there and observing, seeing the pictures, hearing the little, the coos and the cries and the, the jabbering, that it just makes us smile, right? We, we all would agree, like Matt said, that life is a good thing. A new life is a really good thing. And this month is Sanctity of Human Life Month. And Sunday's when, this Sunday's when most people are kind of observing that. And so we want to take the opportunity this morning with, with uh, child dedication to talk about the sanctity of human life and really talk about um, how this idea of the Imago Dei, or the fact that we were made in God's image, affects um, uh, so much of how we view the world and how we view other human beings. Okay? It, 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 the Imago Dei, this, this teaching has implications everywhere, um, especially the unborn, which we're gonna talk about mostly today, but it also affects how we treat the homeless, the poor, the sick, the mentally challenged, the inmate, the oppressed, the refugee, the immigrant. And we could go on and on and on. So any issues where, where, where human beings are being robbed of dignity and basic human rights, this is our, this is our anchor point in God's word that we go to. The, the, this idea that we are made in the image of God. So here's what I want to say at the outset today. We're going to get into some hard stuff this morning. There's going to, in the middle of our time, we're going, to, we're going to get to some weighty things. And I promise you we're going to come back up at the end. There's some good news awaiting all of us at the end of uh, the sermon today. But we've got to get through some hard things the Scripture are going, to, are going to say to us. And some of those implications are hard for us. 
And so I want to say at the outset that this is not a political thing today. This is not a political issue. This is a biblical issue. We're just simply opening the text and asking, uh, God, what do you have to say about human life? And what value do you place on human life? So we're not making no political statements today at all. This is a biblical, ethical, and spiritual issue that we're dealing with. Okay, so here are the kind of the three steps to give you a roadmap where we're headed today. First, we're going to look at the Imago Dei, this idea of the image of God, and, and really answer the question, when does it begin? When does it begin? Number two, um, we have to understand the implications as we read this and understand this, the implications that it has for protecting the unborn and all other human rights issues. And number three, what can we do about it? How do we respond to what God's going to tell us in his word this morning? And so let's read this text again, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the, of the air, or the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The first thing I want you to notice about this passage is that God first starts with um, of how we were created and who we were created by. So he starts off with our being, with our personhood. He said, you are made in the image of God. This is how God starts. We're human beings. This is who we are. This is how we exist. And then secondly, he talks about how we're going to function in the, on the earth, right? Like what, what our role is going to be, what our purpose is going to be. And that order is really important. When we think of our creation as human beings, we first need to think about that we are created as image bearers of God. And when it talks about being created in God's likeness, um, this doesn't mean we're exact representations of God. That's what the Bible speaks, how it speaks of Jesus. But we are made in his likeness, meaning we share many of God's characteristics. The ability to love, the ability to think, the ability to show mercy, the ability to show grace towards other people. We share characteristics with God. But primarily it means we're reflections of God to the rest of creations. We're, we're his representatives. We're made in his likeness to, so the world can, um, can know um, who he is and what he is like. This is why God created us. The, other, the, the main reason, um, this tells us the main reason that sets us apart, human beings, from the rest of human creation, right? It, we're, we're obviously different from the rest of, of animals and all other living things because we have a, a moral center. We're moral and spiritual beings. The Bible will call this that we have a soul. And this is what separates us from all other forms of life. We see in the Genesis narrative that he, he starts with male and female, and then on different days, he moves on to different kinds of, of animal life and plant life and these things. Human beings are distinct. We're the only ones that are made after his image. And that's really, really important as we move on through the morning. And listen, anim animals um, are, are, can be valuable things, right? But they're not as valuable as human beings. Like, I don't care how endangered a certain kind of animal is, it never, ever has more value than a human being. Why? Because they're not made in God's image. We are as human beings. So that important question that we have to ask, when does this imago Dei, or the image of God, begin? Like, when does that start? Well, let's look at Psalm 139. Many of you have probably heard this passage. Listen to the psalmist. It says, For you formed me, talking about God, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now listen, I know that I look like a guy who knits a lot. Um, Trust me, I don't. If you were mistaken, I don't knit. Um, But think about the idea of knitting. I think we can all understand, right? Like you take uh, some kind of uh, usually yarn or material or string, and it's, it's an intricate detail process. You weave that together with other strings, other pieces of yarn, and you weave that together. And what looks like kind of nothing all of a sudden turns into this, this beautiful sweater or blanket or, or, or rug or whatever it is. This is the idea of knitting, and God has chosen specifically to use that, that word and that description um, as he's describing how God created us. God in the womb. Notice it say, this takes place in the womb. He is shaping, molding, weaving, putting us together in his sovereignty. He's crafting our personality, our makeup, how we interact with others, how we're going to interact with the world. God is doing all of this in the womb, Psalm, the psalmist tells us. Not when we are born does he do this. Not when we have a conscience not when we can hit when we hit three years old and can tell right from wrong. He is knitting us together in our mother's womb. So he's obviously active in the womb. God is creating us, creating our form and forming us in these things. But here's the real question as it comes to, as we discuss and think through this issue, when does personhood begin? Like when do people become moral agents? Or at what point does a human have a soul? Because once we get into this conversation, we're not going to go super deep into the morning just for the, lack of, for the sake of time. But as you hear about it, it's, it's much more difficult to discard and destroy a clump of cells if we can refer to that thing as a clump of cells. But once you start putting a soul to it, start calling it a person in a human being, it's a lot more difficult to navigate into those waters if you are heading that direction or if you believe that's okay. And this is why the image of God and when that begins is such an important um, role in this discussion. You think of other examples in the scriptures. Luke 1, where you have Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John. He leaps when Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, comes into the room. And Mary says she feels Jesus when Jesus is in the womb. Think about Jesus was an embryo at one time. Think about that. Like Jesus, our God, our Savior, was in Mary's womb existing as an embryo. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about that. The Bible teaches also that human beings have moral agency in the womb. Listen to Psalm 58.3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Okay, now don't get hung up on that wicked word there, right? That's talking about original sin and how we're all born into sin. But the main point here uh, for this discussion is that he's ascribing moral agency to a, to a baby in the womb. That there's, they're called wicked, right? It's going to be born into sin as it relates to Genesis 3. And again, we don't have time. I wish we could go into that, how that happens. But basically, this is telling us that there's some moral state that exists with a child inside the womb. Job 14.4 says this, who can bring a clean thing, talking about childbirth, out of an unclean thing? There is not one. Meaning when you put a sinful dad and a sinful mom and their two cells come together to create a baby, you're taking a, a, a sinner, like we all are in this room, a sinful 
male and a sinful female and you put them together, you can't make a righteous thing out of two unrighteous things. This is what Job's telling us. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not talking about the way the, the baby was conceived. That's not the point. That's not what the psalmist is saying. He's saying through the conception that he was, he was, he was brought in forth in sin. So back to the question, when, is the, when in the womb does the soul become present? When does life begin? And I think the Bible argues that at conception, the per, this, 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 this becomes a baby. This is when personhood starts. This is when life starts, when um, a baby is conceived. Now, now biblically, if we were just going to take the biblical stance here, we would say that to take a life in the womb is murder because of what the Bible has just said. Again, that's just what the Bible is saying. And as technology continues to improve and we're able to, to get better pictures, more detailed pictures, earlier pictures in the, the pregnancy, we're finding more and more about how babies develop inside the womb and how they're de- we're finding out they're developing things earlier and earlier. For example, um, at the moment of conception, this new fertilized egg contains the baby's own DNA. Some, some of it's mom, some of it's dad, but it's the baby's own DNA. He's not getting anything after conception from mom or dad in that way. It's, the, it's, it's his or her own DNA. At eight weeks, all of the baby's organs are fully functioning. All the baby's organs are fully functioning. The baby's own heart is pumping blood through his or her own body. It's not taking the mother's blood to pump through his own. It's, it's the, his, heart, his or her heart is actually pumping the blood through their body. Nerve endings are formed as early as eight weeks because we know that babies react to, to stimuli inside their room. They react to pain. They move away. Um, when you look at it on a can, they move away when they're touched by things inside of the womb. And here's maybe the, the, the thing that I really got my head around more this week as I studied this is that, um, that from the moment an egg is fertilized to the moment of, uh, of someone dying, let's just say 80 years old, um, there exists the same whole integrated human being. Here's what I mean by that. The only difference between um, a, a, a baby at conception and an 80-year-old person is development, and that comes with time. Right? The baby has everything it needs to develop when it is conceived, and it will continue to develop in that way if given time. And here's why this is important, because the, a biggest, biggest, one of the biggest issues in this whole debate is when do you draw the line at personhood? Like, when do you say, okay, now the human being has rights. Now the human being deserves everything that other human beings deserve. And, and, and there's, it's, it's really hard to draw that line because there, scientifically, a clump of cells doesn't magically become a human being at some point in the process. There's no scientific evidence to that. And so you have to go all the way back to conception to see this is when that life began, and now it just continues to form and form as time goes on. And so trying to draw this line to when a baby deserves to be treated a certain way, it's impossible unless you start at conception and then work forward in that way. So I think if you look at the biblical evidence, and it's my opinion, the scientific evidence, I think the, the, the evidence becomes overwhelming that life begins at conception. Here's another reason for that. 66% of women said after they, they had an abortion, they knew abortion was wrong. 66%. There was a part of them that thought it was wrong. 67.5 of women said that after having an abortion, um, it was one of the hardest decisions they, they ever made. Right? So, so if, if we're just 
uh, discarding or destroying a clump of cell, a clump of cells. If that's if that's what we're doing, really, then why does anybody ever feel bad about destroying a clump of cells, right? Like like we destroy clumps of cells from our body every day. A lot of medical procedures take cells out of our body and discard them, and nobody thinks twice about it. No one has any kind of moral inkling to say, oh, that was that that may have been wrong. That and and we never think that way because it's it really is a clump of cells, right? But. But this is why built, into, built inside of us, I think there's this moral compass saying, oh, that was, that was wrong. That probably wasn't right. And that's when, when, you, when, when, when women are asked this question after an abortion, that's why there's something inside of them that says, yeah, that was really hard. If it was just a clump of cells, really, it wouldn't have been hard. That's, that's not a moral decision really for any of us at that point. Okay, so if you start to think about this thing, I think, in my opinion, that abortion stops becoming um, a rational argument. It really does. It's hard to wrap my mind around having a rational argument. And here's kind of two, two scenarios to prove this that I heard this week as I was reading. Uh, one, you take animals. Right now, there are two that I came across that um, the bald eagle in our country, you cannot touch a bald eagle's eggs. It's against the law. You will, be, you will be prosecuted if you do that. They're protected. They're protecting unborn eagles, right, by the law. And then in Florida, you can't touch a sea turtle's eggs. You can't touch a sea turtle's eggs by law. You can't do that. Um, it's against the law. So the, these pre-born animals are being protected by the law more so than even babies, okay? And that's not even talking about animals that are, I mean, after, after they are born and alive and all the, the effort that goes into protecting animals. Again, I, I love animals. Those of you who know me well, I love animals. There's nothing wrong with loving animals and choosing to protect animals. I'm okay with that. But not, at the same time, not standing for the rights of the unborn humans. Like, it just doesn't make sense. In my mind, logically, you can say, I want to protect animals, but not human beings. And the other one um, scenario is that if a, if, a, if a woman is choosing to have an abortion, they're heading to the clinic, and on the way to the clinic, they are, uh, uh, them and their baby is murdered by a drunk driver. That drunk driver will face two counts of manslaughter or murder. Two counts. One for her, one for the baby, right? And, but if she doesn't get in that wreck, makes it to the clinic, has the abortion, then that baby is not protected. Again, I, I, it doesn't make sense logically. Like you, you, you can't make this. Like you can't make these things work. So again, something else to think about. Okay. Now, one thing I want to kind of what a lot of people think, and I've thought of this in this situ- as we talk about this is you jump to the what if scenarios of rape and endangerment to mom either in the pregnancy or during birth. And again, those are tough, tough issues. And I don't want to minimize those. I don't think it changes the stance or the position that the Bible takes on that. Um, However, I just want to say those are difficult situations, but they make up less than 0.5% of all abortions, less than 0.5%. So to make the whole discussion about that is not helpful for the overall discussion. That means 99.5% of reasons for abortion are outside those reasons. And the overwhelming major reason is, uh, there's really three of them, convenience, um, pressure from dad, pressure from the men in the situation to do it. And, and three, um, they just don't have the resources to care for the children. And that could be real or that could be perceived, right? And that's a, that's a whole other issue. And I understand that, that reasoning there. And we'll talk a little bit about that at the end, because that's a real issue. Again, I don't think it changes the position. So, position. so 
with all that being said, I think we see that this idea of, of, of humans being born in the image of God at conception has major weight to how we think about this issue, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, especially if you think the Bible is God's word. I think there's enough evidence outside the Bible, I think, to persuade anybody into um, this, this thinking as it relates to abortion. Now, uh, Scott Klusendorf is a, is a Christian, and he's a theologian. He's also a philosopher that, that uh, deals a lot in this, with this conversation. I'm just going to read this, this uh, quote from him and from one of his writings. And it's, it's long, but stay with this, because I think this is... Um, this is um, let's, uh, it's, go with the one that starts with ab- abortion. Sorry, these are out of order a little bit. Um, yes, and then that other one will be second. Okay, abortion advocates like Marianne Warren claim that a person is a living entity with feelings, self-awareness, consciousness, and the ability to interact with his or her environment. Because a human fetus has none of these capabilities, it's not a person. Philosopher Jane Narvison makes points similar to Warren. He argues that humans have value and hence rights, not in virtue of the kind of thing they are, which is members of a natural kind or species, human beings, but only because of an acquired property. In this case, the immediate capacity to make conscious, deliberate choices. Because fetuses lack this acquired property, they have no rights. A woman's choice to abort then does not negatively affect the fetus or deny it any fundamental liberties. And then Peter Singer, this is still Scott Klusendorf uh, uh, quoting here, Peter Singer, though, in Practical Ethics, bites the bullet and says, there is none that arguments used to justify abortion work equally well to infanticide. Abortion advocates Michael Tooley and uh, Marianne Warren agree. For example, if the immediate capacity for self-consciousness makes one valuable as a subject to rights and newborns like fetuses lack that immediate capacity, it follows that fetuses and newborns are both disqualified. You can't draw an arbitrary line at birth and spare newborns. Following Narvison's logic, infanticide, like abortion, would be morally permissible. Again, talking about that, where do you draw the line question? And this is Klusendorf here talking. Philosophically, it's far more reasonable to argue that although humans differ immensely with respect to talents, accomplishments, and degrees of development, they are nonetheless equal because they share a common human nature. Humans, and this is important for all issues of human rights right here, Humans have value simply because they are human, not because of some acquired property that they may gain or lose during their lifetimes. If you deny this, it's difficult to say why objective human rights apply to anyone, right? So if you want to start talking about human rights and saying it's when you get to this stage or this stage or this stage, that's a slippery slope into all sorts of human rights, especially as you get to mentally disabled and elderly and all, I mean, it goes in places that we, I don't think most human beings would want that to go. And so once again, where do you draw the line? And I could go into a lot of other things, but I can't for the sake of time today. There's a lot of free resources online out there if you dig and, and read a little bit. Okay, so what do we do about this, okay? I want to kind of start to start to end here with what do we do? A, f- a few things. Number one's pray. As followers of Jesus, I think we should be praying because this, with, with the logic, I think, going out the window and in the way it's moving, I think uh, prayer might be the only thing to turn um, the ship in this thing because it just doesn't make sense. Like just rational arguments are not working, it seems. So we just need prayer. There's a spiritual force in darkness, the Bible tells us, working in this world, and I think it's especially working in this issue right now. So we need to pray as Christians. Now, this is for Christians too, or those of us, um, especially Christians, repent of our indifference, okay? 
So I want to talk, repent of our indifference. If, even if you've had no close connection to abortion, we can't be indifferent to this. 862,320 babies killed, souls taken in 2017. That's 2,362 every day in 2017. Um, abortion doesn't just hurt a baby, it hurts women. Study after study shows that women battle physical and emotional trauma for the rest of their lives. We want to care for the baby. We also want to care for women after the fact. But we can't be indifferent to either person in this matter or dad in this matter either. Okay? Now, here's some things I hear. Okay? I'm going to get, get, get up in, in our kitchen because it's been hitting me all week. So here it is. And I've probably thought these things before too. These are some things I've heard, not necessarily in our church, but ways to kind of dismiss this issue and maybe be indifferent. Uh, first thing I've heard before, I'm personally against abortion, but I can't tell a woman what to do with her body. Okay? Um, here's why I don't think that works is because if we were seeing other human beings murdered, I don't think we would say, you know, they can do whatever they want to with their body. They can do whatever they want to. I'm just not going to intervene. I'm not going to say anything because that's just not my place. Well, if, it's, if it is murder, then I think we have the right to intervene, right? And I think the, the, the laws too, like it, I can't just, uh, we talk about, the, we can't, we can't, um, I, 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 the government can always tell me what to do with my body, right? I can't go out with my two hands and beat someone to death right now. I can't. The government tells me I can't use my body in that way. So the government tells us all the time what we can and can't do with our bodies. That's normal, okay? So that, I don't think that works. Number two, abortion should be limited to only the first trimester. Hopefully today, we've seen it starts way before that point in time, way before. Number three, we should wait to end abortion until we have a social safety net to care for families. Now, I totally understand the heart behind this. And we have so much work to do as a society to get all those other things in place. And we have to continue to work hard and make sure people are in the right places and, 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 and working hard on, for the sake of the church to make uh, communities better for parents to raise their kids in. So abortion isn't an option. However, we can do both at the same time. We shouldn't say, hey, we should just kind of let those murders keep happening while we fix things here. No, let's stop this and fix this. It's not, we don't have to work on one thing at a time, okay? So I don't think, I think that's put, pitting two things together that don't need to be pitted together. Uh, another word, abortion is wrong, uh, but we can't legislate morality. We legislate morality all the time in our country, right? It's, the laws are there to protect each other. Again, I can't go out and beat someone outside. I will get charged for assault. We don't let parents beat their kids. We don't let spouses hurt one another. The, the, the laws legislate morality all the time. So I don't think that one works either. Abortion, and the last one, abortion will always be a reality because we live in a fallen world and there's nothing we can do that will change that. If that's the case, then we should just put our hands in our pockets and, and wait to die or Jesus to come back to go to heaven. Because that's the point of where we've been saved to help see the world redeemed for every, every human issue. So if, if that's the road you take, then you have to say, I'm not going to care about any wrongdoing, how people are treated in any sector of society ever. So I don't think any of those common, I think kind of things we, maybe we don't say them, but I think maybe we think them as followers of Jesus. Um, we can't use those. We just can't use those anymore. And to, to borrow from Martin Luther King and some of his writing, Jr., and some of the writings he had during um, the, uh, the civil rights movement, um, he was always after people um, that were sitting on the sidelines and not getting in the game. 
And he's saying that these people will affirm life, affirm um, taking care of all races, uh, but their words and actions lack urgency, allowing for this to happen more and more and more. Same with us. Our, our, is our inaction causing the problem to continue in our world? Listen to a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Again, this is in the context of the civil rights movement, but it can apply um, to us as well. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. I think he's talking to anybody who turns a blind eye to really any human rights issue. We should be aware of these things as followers of Jesus, and we should do everything possible to engage them. Okay, so pray, repent of indifference. That's number two. Number three, do something. Do something. And I don't mean to run out in an adrenaline-filled frenzy where you burn hot for three months, and then you get tired because you found another issue to care about. I mean, prayerful, let's pick an issue, let's take a baby step, and let's commit to the long, the long run on these issues. Because none of these things we're talking about, they're so big, so systematic that you can say, I'm just going to run hard for three months and do some good. It's probably going to take a lifetime and much longer than that of slow commitment over the long haul. And it's probably going to come at a personal cost, for sure, time or money, comfort or whatever it is. So we need to be prepared to that. Um, I would say find the issue that you feel like you're most connected with, but you can't be indifferent to any of them. I know we can't do conquer everything at one time. I get that. So you may have an issue that resonates more with you, but you can't say this issue resonates with me and I'm just not going to care about this issue. That's not, I don't think that's the Bible gives us that road. I think we have to care about all issues, but I realize with resources, we may have to pick one and go hard at it, but at least find some way to get in the game. This is you could do foster care. You could find a volunteer at the Eden Clinic where you get to care for the women who come in. You can find, uh, be, uh, consider adopting, being, being people who are uh, certified to do respite care for foster families so they can, you can help them. Volunteer with organizations like CCFI in town where they try to create this environment where parents can be the best parents they possibly can be and children can grow up in the home in a healthy way they want it to. If those, those things are stronger, then more women may want to choose and, and dads carry that baby to term because there's a, there's a net, there's, more, there's that safety net to provide. But again, it's a big problem and we need to work in all of these areas. And I'll say one last thing on this to parents of kids. Matt mentioned it a little bit. Um, and Vicky too, a minute ago, but uh, parents, start talking to your kids, even young, about, about uh, uh, treat uh, babies who are inside the room, treat them as human beings. Okay, try not to wait until like there's this big birth that happens and now they're called the baby. Like treat uh, pregnant women that they actually carry a human being inside of them. That's an easy way. That's what we've tried to do with our four-year-olds. Just start changing the language of pointing out, hey, there, there's a baby in there and that baby's gonna come and we're gonna get to meet him or her. And so, and, and the kids are a little bit older, start talking about the ethics behind it. Why do we do this? Why do we, why do we want to protect the unborn? Because they have no say. They have no rights. They, they have a right, but they have no voice to, to give to those rights. They can't protect themselves. So we, we need, they need stronger people to step in and protect them until they can protect themselves. That's, a, that's just a train of thought that you can help um, even um, elementary school kids. Okay, we have to be after this. We have to take action. Now, 
I want to take a turn and close with this. I want to bring it back to the gospel. I want to bring it back to the gospel. Because here is why this is not a political thing. It's because the church should be a place, and I hope we're a place, where people who have been on all sides of this abortion issue can come and find community and find healing and be able to be open with past mistakes and sin in this area. The church has to be a place where people can heal from the wounds suffered by abortion. It has to be. We have to be this kind of place. So if you're here and you've been uh, intimately involved with an abortion, a quarter of women in their lifetime will have an abortion. That's the latest study. A quarter of women in their lifetime would have it. So chances are there may be someone in here who has done that. Don't keep heaping shame and guilt upon yourself. Men, if you've been a part of this, own up to it. Own your part of this, okay? Because it's not just a women's deal. Men, get on board with this. If, this was, if you had a role in this, own it. Let's repent. Let's heal. Let's be open with our shame. Let's be open with our guilt. This is a safe place where you can do that. The, the scripture says where sin abounds, abounds a big word, where there's a lot of sin, there's even more grace. Of grace abounds all the more. There is, there is no sin big enough for the cross. None whatsoever, period. Okay? So if you're here thinking, okay, this is, this is the time. This is why I can't come to church. This is why um, these, these self-righteous people or, you know, we, I, I, just, I just don't fit here because of my past. Stop it. You can't out the cross. You can't out the cross. Everyone here was in the same boat. A sinner separated from God who desperately needed a savior to heal them. We're all the same in that way. We're all broken and we need a savior. So own it and repent of it and admit it and move on and get healing and, and from that, um, from that uh, part, of, part of your story. Think of the Bible. You have people, Moses murdered an Egyptian. He was one of the greatest heroes in the Old Testament. David committed adultery with one of his soldier's wives. She becomes pregnant. He sends him, him, him out to the battlefield, to basically to, his, to, to get murdered, put him in a place where he knew he would get murdered to cover it up. This man's a king who talks, the scripture talks about he's a man after God's own heart, after that. Paul was a man before he became a Christian. He, he drug Christians out of their home, out in the street, helped tie him up, handed them over to the executioners where they killed Christians. This was Paul. This is the man that wrote half the New Testament. He's one of the greatest pastors and church planters of all time. And he was a murderer. Okay? The Bible is full of taking people with junk and mess in their backgrounds and turning them in and making them heroes and redeeming them. This is, this is what Christianity is all about. So there is grace. There's grace for, the, the pers- for those of you who felt like you've been indifferent and haven't cared about this issue. There's grace for you. Those of you who've been intimately involved with an abortion, there is grace for you. There's grace for everyone in this room, no matter where you're at. And I want to leave you with one imagery here. What I think of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. And you have that moment where she's on the ground. She's been drug out, probably beaten already, half naked, laying there in the ground in the street. And all the religious leaders have dropped their stones and left. And he asks her. He probably stoops low on the ground, takes his, her, her, maybe her hands and, and hit her face in his hands and looks at her in the eyes. He says, where are your accusers? She looks around. They're, they're gone. They're not. He's like, you're right. You're right. Neither do I accuse you either. And so let that imagery wash over that Jesus is looking you in the eyes and he's saying, I've taken care of it. All of it. 
everything. Nope, not that one. Nope, you're not too bad. Nope, don't go there. I've taken all of it. Come to me, rest in me. There's grace available. This is Jesus. This is our Savior. This is the one who we worship. So if you're feeling shame, if you're feeling guilt, come to him this morning. We're going to respond, and we're going to have a chance to respond as we take communion here. Let me pray for us first. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it's such a tough issue um, in our day and age that you, I think, speak very clearly in your word on this. And we don't have to trust um, politicians and researchers on, in, on either side of the aisle for this, that we can trust your word. And we thank you for um, creating us in your image. We thank you for making us different than animals. And I pray that we would continue to grow in our understanding of that truth and that would help guide us, help us navigate how we treat other people. That may be big issues like we talked about today or that may be the way we drive and how we speak of other drivers on the road. Everyone we come in contact to is made in your image. I just pray you would help us take that truth, that idea, even though it's massive, to help us internalize it and that it would change the way we love other people. I pray you would help us through your spirit do that. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.